0: I am Plant on the Line in Vancouver, British Columbia, at thecommentary.ca. Estella Kushta joins me now in her uh, new novel, Finding the Daydreamer, her debut. She takes us to central British Columbia in the era of the Depression. It's a pretty rural place with cowboys and the land all around. The interior of British Columbia is a place where uh, little fiction has been uh, said in heretofore. and Miss Kushta takes us to a time and place where attitudes are a little different, though it's uh, hard to say what's actually Express now as then when uh, this book takes place not much is shared the feelings of loneliness abandonment and uh, a vast landscape are evoked which uh, leaves a lot of room for characters in the book to daydream what they want or long for are often uh, simple like love alaska stella about um, her central uh, character our narrator annabelle and um, that which she leaves and what she seeks I'll ask her about the inspiration for her work, as well as the the research she's done as to the sort of love stories depicted in Canadian literature. What she found, or perhaps didn't, might have inspired her own writing. Estella Kushta is a writer, researcher, and post-secondary instructor here in Vancouver. She earned degrees from the University of British Columbia in creative writing and literature. Visit EstellaKushta.com for more information. This new book is uh, published by Elm Books. Please welcome to the Plant Online Program, Estella Kuchta. Ms. Kuchta, good morning.
1: Good morning. Pleasure to be here. Thanks
0: for joining us. Um, I guess the beginning of the book, we meet um, its central character, our narrator, Annabelle. Um, when we see her at the, at the start of your book, where is she in her life? Like, how old is she? She
1: is in her late 20s. She's the mother of a young girl who's three years old. And she's living up in the Caribou
0: Chilcotin region on a ranch with her husband. And, and as, as, I, uh, as we were chatting before we started, the, the, that part of the province is not a, pro, a part of the province that, that say, we've uh, read about it all, is it? I mean, I remember talking to Patrick Lane a, a few years ago when he said a novel in the interior. And he said that, yeah, it's a, it's a part of the, the, the country. I mean, it, most books that come out of B.C. are ones that are set near water.
1: Right, that's a good point. In fact, I mean, I grew up in B.C. I grew up in Langley and Kitimat, and if it wasn't for my grandmother telling me stories about living up in the Chilcotin, I never would have even known that there were cowboys there. So there's a huge gap in the history of our province, and one of my many purposes in writing the book was to try to fill in some of that gap.
0: Um, So you mentioned your grandmother. Is this a part of the province that you say lived in yourself?
1: I haven't actually lived in the Cariboo Chilcotin region. No, I've only been there as a visitor. So really when you're hearing this story, you're hearing it from a couple different perspectives. Now, any historical fiction book, you know, it has the fiction component as uh-huh. well as the historical component. But in this particular instance, my research derived primarily from talking to my grandmother, or rather, more accurately, her talking to me, Mm. because she was a very, very talkative woman with really interesting stories to tell. And the world that she created for me, the descriptions that she gave to me, were of an area where, first off, there were exceedingly few women, especially Mm. white women, and secondly, where people lived a very um, hard-working life during this Depression era. They didn't have time to... Around, write things down. In fact, a great many of the people that she encountered on a day to day basis were illiterate. When she first arrived in the Chocotan from West Vancouver, uh-huh. she arrived there as a school teacher, and the head of the school board of that region had a fourth grade education, wow. and his assistant was completely illiterate. So, there were, uh, you know, people can be educated in a whole number of ways. I want to be really clear about that. But the the majority of the people that she was encountering on a daily basis—the cowboys, a lot of the ranchers, a lot of the indigenous people—didn't write things down, and so that's one of the reasons why we do have this big gap in our history, and uh-huh. why a lot of these stories haven't been told before. Yeah,
0: yeah. Well, what's what's fascinating is um, starting the book is is um, you do get a sense, as you just said a moment ago, uh, about how hard life is, and and. Um, you know the the work involved day to day. I mean, we 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 see Annabelle just working these long hours, and and um, you you get a great sense too. And, and this is this is a your skill as a writer of of the conditions of of um, what her kitchen is like, what it smells like, how heavy everything is. Um, I mean, what's fascinating is you just said your grandmother uh, would would tell you stories about it, but. You've captured it so well. Was was there any other research that you did in the course of writing Finding the Daydreamer?
1: Uh, Yes. So I did take trips up to the Caribou takotan region, visiting the museums, um, looking around the historical buildings. An old family friend, Rex Moon, was very kind in driving me around and painting for me the picture of what that region looked like, where everything was during the Depression era. Um, But another key part of my research, too, was just being with the land. Hmm. So part of this project emerged um, during a period of time where I was studying at UBC in the literature program, and I had a professor named Lori Riku, who I took an eco-criticism class with, and it was kind of one of these classes that really changes the way you view the whole world. He talked about how the land itself and plants and trees and animals themselves Carry stories and inhabit stories and are stories. And so one of the things that I did when I visited these regions, Pemberton and Chilcotin, was to really try to just be in the place and really listen to the land. What are the trees saying? What are the birds saying? And you can hear Annabelle, the character, doing this in parts, too. She listens to the chickadees, and she listens to not just the sound of it, not just what does it mean to a human being but what does it mean to them what does it mean to the sunrise what does it mean to the morning but i also tried to capture the the stories that were emerging from the land
0: how how much has the land changed or or the 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 nature itself in that part of the world from where the book is set to um where we are today i mean uh, your family friend would drive you around and, and tell you the differences, but, I mean, how much of it has changed, say?
1: Um, I'm probably not the most qualified to answer that, but from what I can tell, it hasn't changed enormously. There are some changes, but, you know, when I was visiting in the caribou, I stayed on a horse ranch, interacted with cowboys, and, you know, the cowboys, even the cowboy culture in some ways were still similar to what my grandmother had described from, you know, decades and decades Mm -hmm. ago. So there's still cowboys out there doing their work. Um, Of course, the cattle drives that used to happen from the Chilcotin down to Vancouver where they'd have these, you know, herds of cattle just moving them slowly, slowly over the course of weeks down to Vancouver for Mm -hmm. slaughter. Those obviously don't take place in the same way anymore. But a lot of the culture is still there. I mean, of course, the land, the landscape... The animals, the nature—all those things still exist in the same degree. Just a few more, few more buildings around, few oh, more tractors.
0: I'll, I'll bet. Yeah. Um, when when you um, talk about cowboys, as you do in the book, um, what are they like? And and uh, I guess our, our um, closest reference for for most of us are you know these these Western movies from from you know the, the mid twentieth century, if you will. Are the cowboys in this part of the world in British Columbia? Are they the same? Same.
1: Well, I'm not very versed about cowboys in other parts of the world, but what my grandmother specifically described about cowboy culture in the Tricoltan during the Depression era was really hardworking men who were, by and large, very full of integrity, like good people, good kind people who were hardworking, who were struggling, Mm -hmm. um, especially those who didn't own land, who were just, you know, born cowboys, as they're called, illiterate, um, no land, no property, no money to their name, you know, really arriving at the ranch in kind of very hardship circumstances with little in their possession and very hungry, <laughs> really, really physically hungry, um, and then quite quiet, too, you know, not very talkative people. My grandmother was an extremely talkative person. She loved storytelling. She loved to engage in conversations. But she described the cowboys of that region as being quite quiet and talking only when they needed to.
0: Mm. And that, that's a, the sense that we get as we start the book. Um, in terms of the uh, nature of the relationship between Annabelle and her husband, um, I forget his name now, Hugh, right?
2: Hugh, yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, what is that? And I mean, You're obviously not going to tell us the whole thing because we, we need to yeah. read the book to, to yeah. find out. But uh, as we meet them, um, but you, you mentioned this, a thing a moment ago about, about um, the importance of land and property. I guess that's one of the reasons why she married him, right?
1: Yes, uh, for sure. A woman of that time period in that region probably wouldn't have considered marrying somebody who didn't have land because that would equate to a life of such utter poverty that you probably wouldn't be able to literally survive. Mm-hmm. And you can see even for a married woman... Um, woman on a ranch life is hard enough to survive
2: yeah
1: and so yeah you really looked for somebody who owned property um, was the first thing but our character Annabelle finds herself in a situation that anybody in any area could have where she married a man who turns out to be not who she thinks Mm. and the the initial slow unraveling of that lie is difficult and then the sudden realization when drastic events take place is utterly shocking Um, and so that's something that she needs to come to terms with one of the other reasons why I wrote the book is I wanted to try to write the stories that hadn't been told and they hadn't been told because people didn't have the time because people didn't write
2: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, they were illiterate but also I wanted to try to tell some of the stories that were secret or forbidden and I hope people will forgive me for talking about things that may be uncomfortable in the book, but one of my purposes was to try to pull back the veil on some of the some of the stories that I think don't get told, um, and should be. They should be told, even though they're very painful stories.
0: And so in, in writing about what you do in the book, and we're, we're skirting this for people listening to because we don't want to give away parts of it. Exactly. What? Um, um, when you choose to do that, though, um, what sort of research is involved? I mean, um, how do you know that something like what happens or, or what is described in the book or, or what is talked about, so some of the themes in the book, how do you know that those things happened?
1: Well, I don't know that they happened there, but I do know that they've happened Everywhere, if that makes sense. Right, right, right. And, um, you know, I did try to do a lot of research into the particular drama and trauma that we're discussing. Uh But there's a very limited amount of um, data available. And so I found that my primary sources came from people who I know who unfortunately have experienced something similar.
0: Yeah, and what's fascinating, this drama, this trauma that you, you, you've you talked about, um, setting it in that context, and, and because it is a novel, it is a work mm-hmm. of fiction, uh, is uh, sort of navigating what that would be like in that time with these people. And um, I think that's a fascinating thing that, that, that you illuminate, because it, it makes um, something that happened in the era of the depression, Mm -hmm. awfully relevant to today.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm trying to walk a very fine line in some sense in the book because even though there is very extreme trauma that occurs, part of the story, as I'm sure you know, is also really just about love. In fact, the book as a whole is really about love. And the book emerged from my own research about love I um, had been given a very generous shirk grant to try to investigate the nature of Canadian love stories because I realized that we can talk about a classic French love story or classic Chinese love story, classic Victorian love story, uh-huh. classic Russian love story, and we all have like a little bit of a sense of what we're talking about, even though, of course, any particular um, national genre is going to have some variations. But what's a classical Canadian
2: love story? Mm,
0: What's,
1: What's that flavor even look like? Nobody had investigated this. Nobody had looked into it. So for my graduate work up at UBC, this was my task to try to resolve this question. And because I'm a person who thinks in stories, and sometimes I can only figure things out through telling a story, I decided to actually try to write it i figured out that there were some pieces of the puzzle that factor into that equation, like vast geography is
2: mm, right. certainly yeah. a
1: factor in Canadian love stories. The fact that you have um, a huge population of people who, except for the Indigenous people, are all immigrants coming uh-huh. from somewhere else trying to figure out how to get along, and they've determined already that you know politeness and harmony are going to be sort of the cultural foundation. Well, how can you have a culture of Passion if you have a culture that primarily prioritizes politeness. Mm. So these were questions I tried to unravel through the storytelling. And as I wrote the book, I began with the question how do you have a real love story? How do you have a passion love story? Not just the I married him because he owned land stuff story. <laughs> you know, I married him because he was one of only three single people in the town, right? But how do you have like a real passionate love story in this location at this time period? That was one of the questions that I was trying to unravel and I began with a character who I, I really wanted to invest my my energy in somebody who I felt I admired. So, I've read a lot of books, you know, in the last couple of decades where the trend has often been in these very deeply flawed protagonists yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. who are
1: essentially bad guys or bad you know, bad people who have a, a soft underside. And I thought, that's, that's interesting, but I, I actually really want to see a character who I admire. Who uh-huh. would I look up to? Who would I want to be friends with or learn from? And so I began with this character of Annabelle in this setting, in this context, at this time and place with these untold stories, trying to resolve this question of what is a Canadian love story? How can you make that happen? And then I just wrote, and really through the entire book, I never had any idea what was going to happen next. Yeah, I could see about five pages ahead, and that was it.
0: So, so what was it about Annabelle that you just liked about her?
1: Well, I think she has a different way of understanding the world, and it's a way that was really quite in contrast to the people that she was around. So she lives in this very pragmatic, down-to-earth, practical, hard-working environment, and she's really not like that herself. By temperament, uh-huh. uh, she's very much a daydreamer. She's somebody who, you know, probably given more choices in life could have been a brilliant artist of some kind or or even writer or working in the creative fields or even healer or something involving intuition and creativity, but that wasn't the world that she was involved in. And so her way of understanding the world really is in contrast to everybody around her. And one of the struggles that she has all throughout the book is to try to reconcile that because she actually knows more than she thinks, and part of her struggle is in Learning how to trust mm-hmm. what she does know. Learning how to not be like other people, but learning how to trust who she really is.
0: And and, and that's one of the the, the things um, that I find fascinating about um, her character is, is is that her daydreaming. I mean, it, it takes her to a lot of different places, doesn't it? Yeah. And and I yeah. guess it it um, encourages her to, to actually go other places later on, doesn't it?
1: Yes. So, you know, I, even I think it's like the second sentence in the book, it's like intuition and daydream kind of blur together for her. And it takes her an awful long time to sort of sort out what is what. You know, what's daydream, what's intuition, where do the two meet, and how can she use that? How does that benefit her understanding of the world and and her feeling of acceptance in the world?
0: A lot of people, I guess, um, are, are discouraged from daydreaming because it... it, it um... Is, is distracting i suppose um have you found it a, a benefit in your own life say even in your own practice of writing
1: absolutely yeah but i think that you said something really key just there which is that you know we don't really daydream very much anymore
2: no. there are
1: scholars who research this and talk about this but we live in a world that is now so fast paced there's so much entertainment and expectation at your fingertips all the time that so we don't really take the time, most of us, to just sit back and daydream. It's actually in those daydreaming moments that not just Annabelle, but all of us can find something from a deeper place that is maybe a little more real than the 50 things we're scrolling through on our phone in multiple seconds. Right,
0: right. Um, so, it, yeah. it, it's sort of even like um, like I don't get enough sleep, so it, it's sort of even mm-hmm. the, the dreaming that one does when they're, when they're asleep um you realize that, that um, you know, you've, you've lost something.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that we really have. And, you know, the, the world that we have all created for ourselves is one where we're being pulled over and over again into this sort of material world. And it's not just the material world that Annabelle encounters out walking on the cowboy trails on the horse, you know, of landscapes filled with glaciers and mountains and birds and clouds. It's not that. It's this material world that is uh, our own reflection. It's all these man-made things that reflect our own needs and desires, that reflect our own consumerism. And we have a very difficult time breaking away from that. And I think that part of it is we've created this culture where we somehow have equated happiness this kind of materialism and the two don't equate you know there's a there's uh one doesn't equal the other and so what annabelle discovers through her big journeys through actually through losing everything is that there's a kind of happiness a kind of contentment a kind of satisfaction with life that can come from deep inside it doesn't have anything to do With a ranch or ownership or property or all the other materialisms of our world, then or now.
0: Now, did she always know that or or does she uh, come to realize that because of something that happens in her life?
1: She definitely didn't always know that. It's an accidental learning. As Annabelle experiences, like many of us, you know, uh, a huge curveball coming at her,
0: you know,
1: big fork in the road unexpected, and that leads her to many different learnings that she never would have encountered otherwise.
0: Um, in, in terms of, um, you, you spoke a moment ago about the research that you did about um, uh, love stories um, in Canadian writing. Um, in, in terms of what you found out over the course of your research, um were there gaps? Were, were there things that, that, that appeared, say, in other fiction that didn't appear in, in Canadian fiction that you uh, were, say, keenly aware of and wanted to, say, depict in, in your book?
1: Um, yes, for sure. So speaking of gaps, one of the things that I found very interesting is that even though I struggled, you know, back in 2008 when I was finishing this research, to try to find Canadian books set within the borders of Canada, written by Canadian authors that did have deeply devoted or passionate or intense love stories of some kind. I did find Canadian authors, such as Michael Ondaatje mm. and um, Margaret Atwood, who wrote books that were passionate, intense, deeply devoted, but set outside the geographical boundaries of Canada. Mm. So that was another really interesting thing to me. Um, so... One of the things that I tried to do is I thought, okay, well, there are other kinds of love stories. There's the familial love story. is quite common in Canadian literature, you know, the family who sticks together out of loyalty. Um, There's friendship stories. There's, you know, the I love him, he doesn't love me, but it's kind of okay. A sort of acceptance unrequited love story. Um, or I love him, he maybe loves me, but we're just going to focus on our business for now, and the love story becomes sidelined. So I tried to make a story, or wanted to see if I could make a story where love was central. Love is the central theme, and love can be passionate, and can be intense, and can be devotional, and a whole number of other things that I do find in other literature around the world. And I think readers will have to judge for themselves whether I succeeded
0: uh, from what i've read of it it's it's, it's a lot of it is beautifully written a lot of it is evocative and I can't see why it uh, uh it isn't a good read um in, in terms of um uh, your own say habits uh, as a writer because I, I I read an article about um online about you and um, or an interview that you gave um that uh, this book was written in a rather eventful time in your own life these past 10 years. So so how mm. did you find the time to, to say, write?
1: Um, I found it with a great amount of difficulty. So, yeah, uh, I wrote the book while raising two children as a very low-income single mother and also while moving multiple times and moving between different countries for work, So I wrote the book in British Columbia, in various areas of British Columbia. I wrote it while working in Japan, Mm -hmm. I wrote it while working in China, and I wrote it while living in California. Uh, So it was very tumultuous, and I think that the only real thing I had going for me was my determination that I really wanted to finish the book. I love writing. Um, You know, It's such a huge part of my life, even though this is my first published novel. I've been writing for decades professionally. And um, and then I just found little times here and there, which is difficult to do because I think as most writers will tell you, to really get engrossed in writing a novel, it's almost like you have to have a split personality for a sure, period of yeah, time. Yeah. And there were days and weeks where I was so deeply immersed in Annabelle's world that it felt like this world of being in Vancouver and being a parent was a little bit of a mirage. This didn't feel like the more important world (laughs) for Mm -hmm. a little while. Yeah. So it it was a, it was definitely a big challenge and it took a long time to do.
0: Yeah. I've talked to writers over the years and, you know, some, some talk about how they get up early in the morning and, and carve out a good chunk of their day and, and write and, or some, you know, work better late at night. Um, but if you're busy in the rest of your life, I mean, did you have a routine or or, or anything like that?
1: Um, no, there is nothing even remotely like a routine. Most of the time during the 10 years when I wrote this, I was working so much at my regular job, um, teaching at colleges and universities, mm-hmm. that I didn't have time to write on a daily or even a weekly basis. And so the writing would be in spurts and chunks. Um, so, for example... When I went to Japan, I was away from my children for a couple of months, and then I wrote every day um, oh. for at least a couple of hours, but could be any time of day. So I, I'm kind of a, I, I just write whenever there happens to be a moment. I can write at a cafe that's super noisy, I can write in the middle of my living room with noise going around, I can oh. write in the morning, I can write at midnight I can write for 12 hours at a stretch, or I can write for half an hour, although I really prefer the 12-hour stretch.
0: Right, yeah. Yeah, Yeah,
1: so just kind of throw it together, and unfortunately, there's been no sense of routine. I do really envy other writers who have had the opportunity and the money or the time or the ability to have some kind of routine. I think maybe I could have written a lot more by now, (laughs) but I'm very glad that I have at least one book and others on the way, yeah.
0: Some people might wonder why it's an American publisher that, that uh, took on your book.
1: Mm-hmm. It's an excellent question. Um, there are two reasons. The first one is just a little bit by chance. I was finishing the book and just going through and making revisions, and one serendipitous thing led to another, and I found myself at a conference in the U.S. that was for love researchers and also popular romance scholars, scholars. Um, mm-hmm. And I gave a presentation on my research on Canadian love literature. And during the course of the presentation, I mentioned the book that I was writing. After the presentation, a woman approached me and told me she was a publisher and she was interested in seeing the manuscript. So I sent it to her and she agreed to publish it. Really, the main reason why it has an American publisher is that somebody approached me. I never even submitted it to Canadian publishing houses. I never submitted it to anybody, only to her. And my thinking was, you know, better a bird in the hand than two in the tree.
2: And then
1: the other reason is that, you know, I, I actually did spend 10 years living in the United States, living in California. And I don't really know why it is, but I found that all of the writing I have ever done, in any genre, whether it's poetry, journalism, fiction, or whatever, I've always had an easier time publishing in the U.S. than in Canada. And I don't really know why that is. Um, But I figured since an American publisher wanted to do it, and I have never had very good luck with Canadian publishers, uh, that was another deciding factor for me.
0: And and what's wonderful as I'm reading the book is that that, um, it's a story that it's set in a province that I live in. And mm-hmm. yet, um, at the end of the day, it's really about the love story here. And and that's what's resonated with people outside of the province. And, and um, you know, the, 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 that's not a terrible thing, is it?
1: Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I mean, all of us in B.C., I think, want to know, and I think many people like me crave to know a little bit more about our history
2: here. Yeah, yeah.
1: But it's also true that there are people in lots of other parts of the world who would be very interested in British Columbia history if they had an opportunity to learn about it. For example, there's a a huge population of Germans who regularly go to the type of um, ranches that I stayed on when I was doing research for this book who I think would be fascinated by a book like this, you know, once Mm -hmm. they know about it.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned having other writing uh, that that you're working on, that you've worked on. Mm -hmm. Uh, what, What might one expect? I mean, is there another novel coming out shortly after this?
1: I wish that there was another novel coming out shortly. I am working on another one. I've Uh started it, but um, I'm still a very busy person, unfortunately. And so I I never have quite enough money or funding to work on it in a devoted kind of way. But I do have a second book started that's a novel. I also have um, another book that is under contract right now that is nonfiction that I'm co-authoring with Sean Blankensop that is really looking at... um, my research in the field of ecologizing education, looking at the way that we can understand how humans interact with the natural world, and how what that means to um, elementary and high school education. So that book should be coming out first, and then after that, hopefully, my next novel.
0: In in that in that nonfiction book, or do, do you look at how um, ecology is depicted in fiction?
1: I don't know, but I am currently undertaking a PhD where I'm trying to tackle some of those questions as well. So, looking into eco criticism, mm-hmm. um, literature that deals with the more than human world, and also looking at the way that we even use the English language. And here we are using a language that is, you know, it's colonized a huge portion of the world. Yeah. It's a language that is. And that be associated with colonization, with oppression, with materialism, with capitalism. And those are things that run in contrast to ecological awareness and ecological sustainability. So part of my project at my PhD is to try to figure out well, how can we how can we reshape the English language? It's very malleable as languages go, extremely flexible. So how can we use that gift of the English language to overcome its
0: many weaknesses this is uh it's been such a pleasure to speak with you today stella um congratulations on this book and and um i hope it does well because i think people uh, ought to read it and uh well i hope in the hopes as well that it encourages um you to write more and uh because it's it's a it's a very strong book that emerges in this debut uh, i appreciate your time today thanks for this and and all the best
1: Thanks. I really appreciate the phone call.
0: The book is called Finding the Daydreamer. It's published by Elm Books. Visit Estella's website at estellacushta.com. She joined me from here in Vancouver. I'm Joseph Planta.